Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. We are continuing the denomination series and today we are getting into the Baptists. Now this is probably going to be one of the tougher categories. Originally I had toughest, but then I looked into the Adventists and they gave me a run for my money. And so we're going to go ahead and go into the Baptists. You're going to expect some individual groups to pop up in this episode, but that's not going to occur if they're not directly related to the current Baptist movement. Um, how this is going to work is that there is going to be a section at the end of the series, or not a section, but an episode at the end of the series that may be longer, but it's going to be kind of a miscellaneous section. So we're going to talk about like the fundamentalists, which would include the independent fundamentalist Baptists, the Quakers, non-denominational Groups like that. Um, so th that's the heads up for that because they are offshoots. They're kind of their own thing. And that really goes with like the non-denominational, which really stems more from the restorationist movement, which will have its own episode. But the non-denominational, as we know today in our contemporary setting, will be in that miscellaneous category. So hopefully that makes sense. But what we're going to do today is talk about the Baptist streams of thought, which does include a sub um, distinction that is the general and the particular Baptist that will be made clear. We're going to try to cover both in the historical survey because we're covering both. It's going to be summarized and some of the historical points that I'm bringing up are debated. I am drawing conclusions, my own conclusions from the data, and this is these conclusions are debated. So that's just out there in the front that you know, if you want to do some diving on this, you may find disagreements with the conclusions that I've drawn, uh, which aren't just my conclusions, right? Other people hold the same view. Before we begin, please remember that Christ the Cure is subscriber supported. We need more patrons at patreon.com forward slash Christ the Cure to ensure that we continue into season five. Prayerfully consider joining the Patreon support team for at least a year and then see how you feel after a year, whether or not you are led to continue supporting Christ the Cure beyond them. So let's get to it. Uh, Baptistic history actually arose from English Puritanism, convinced that the separatists or the Congregationalists that we already mentioned in episode six needed further reform. I've tried to keep these in a chronological order where they make sense. Obviously, putting the Mennonites before the Baptists could be kind of confusing in that way. But the, the Baptists came from the separatists or Congregationalists, believing that they needed further reform. And at its outset, there were two parallel lines of Baptistic thought occurring, that is the General Baptists and the Particular Baptists. The earliest Baptist church stems from Thomas Helways. I think that's how you say his name, Thomas Helways. It's H-E-L-W-Y-S. And that was in 1612. Now, there was a man named Smith, John Smith, who led a separatist congregation against the Church of England in 1607, but he and the congregation fled to Holland due to persecution. Now, at this time, his congregation was not Baptist. For Smith, at some point during his time at Cambridge or in Holland, he began rejecting both infant baptism and unconditional election. Eventually, the congregation would come to hold to believers' baptism that it was the only true form of baptism, and Smith and his congregation, along with Helways, would be rebaptized. These were the General Baptists, and the name General Baptists signified their position on the atonement, that is, that they held to a universal scope of atonement, 
which is indicative of their overall characterization that they are Armenian Baptists. And again, this is not Armenian as in the country. This is Armenian as in Jacob Arminius opposed to Calvinists. So General Baptists indicated that they were Arminians. They held to a universal scope of atonement. Now, during this time, the group encountered the Mennonites that we talked about in episode seven, I believe it was. And they found that they had agreement on baptism that is rejecting paedo-baptism and holding to believers only baptism. John Smith in particular came to see the Mennonites in a very positive light, and he actually denounced his rebaptism, believing that it should have been administered by the Mennonites and that his congregation should join with them. After nearly merging with the Mennonites, the doctrine of the Mennonites caused conflict with some of those within Smith's congregation. That is their doctrines regarding the fall, the imputation of Adam's guilt, Minnow's Christology, and so forth. So John Smith's congregation split with some of the Baptists, Smith included, joining the Mennonites, while Hellways and his congregants did not, and they quickly sought to separate themselves from the Mennonites through a confession of faith that was written in 1611 called A Declaration of Faith. Here the Baptists wrote against the Mennonite doctrines and outlined a modified Reformed theology similar to Jacob Arminius. General Baptists would continue on and would have other creeds going forward, such as the Orthodox Creed of 1678, which that Orthodox Creed of 1678 is a pretty important document in General Baptist history. Anyway, Helways and his congregation would return to England in 1612, and really the questions about that interaction with the Mennonites and the influence on the General Baptist is the main point of historical debate. So if you want to look into that more, that's really the area that you're looking for. Now, switching gears off of the General Baptist, as early as 1633, arguably, debatably, a group emerged from the Separatists with the conviction that infants weren't to be baptized, and these would be the Calvinist Separatists or the particular Baptists. An initial and key figure in this movement would be John Spillsbury, and both groups of Baptists, both the general and the particular, were seen as heterodox or illegitimate on the charge of being Anabaptists and Arminians, neither of which was true for the particular Baptist. The particular Baptist will put together a confession of faith in 1644 and then also in 1677 in conjunction with the Westminster Confession and the Savoy Declaration. And they were basically were trying to show that they had continuity with the Reformed tradition, especially against the Arminians because of that charge of being Arminian and Anabaptists. Eventually, a general assembly of baptized churches in 1689 would meet. There would be 108 churches represented with pastors and messengers formally signing a confession on behalf of the churches represented. It was a statement containing a doctrine of faith and practice now known as the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith or Second London Baptist Confession. The new exposition of the London Baptist Confession of Faith points out, quote, the assembly was seeking to establish the credibility of this group of Baptists. They were persuaded of their legitimate place in what had taken place in the 16th and 17th centuries in England. However, they had to fight for that credibility. In their own minds, they knew their place in those events. Furthermore, quote, the Baptists saw themselves as a third wave following on from the Reformers and early Puritans, end quote. This identity as a continuation of the Reformation and being of the Reformed tradition is reflected especially in the preface for the confession entitled To the Judicious and Impartial Reader. These Baptists were telling the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists that they found agreement in all fundamental doctrines of the faith and the Canons of Dort against the Arminians. If you don't know, the Canons of Dort are the official declarations of Calvinism that were drafted up in the Netherlands against the Remonstrants or 
the Arminians. Furthermore, the particular Baptists were covenantal, and they did not consider different ecclesiology as an adequate means of being dismissed. Not only did the preface and the confession itself highlight the continuity and discontinuity with the Presbyterians and the Congregationals, but they also had an appendix in the confession whereby the Baptists outlined their position on believers-only baptism against paedo-baptism. The history of these documents and the history of these people are rich, but we will have to stop here for now. If you want to learn more, I would encourage you to go to Founders Ministry and pick up Baptist Symbols Volume 1 and 2, where it's the history of this confession and then an exposition of this confession using historical citations explaining what was being said in it. Now, despite being seen as fringe and not being seen as legitimate and having to fight for that legitimacy, Baptists did well, especially during the First Great Awakening in the 1740s. However, as with other groups, some disagreements arose over particularly the emotionalism of the revivals that had been taking place. Despite some factions, Baptists would be especially influential in the adoption of the First Amendment in the United States Constitution, very likely due to being Congregationalist and having roots in persecuted waters. Now, among the two streams of Baptists already mentioned, that is the particular and the general, there arose other streams, one called the Landmark Baptists and the other being called the Black Baptists. The former, the Landmarks, are those who first insisted that the Baptist Church existed since the days of John the Baptist, and they held themselves as an exclusive apostolic church, for lack of a better term. And this stream is still seen in churches primarily in the American Baptist Association and Baptist Missionary Association. The other significant category that would arise would be the Black Baptists, and this came from the fact that the great majority of African Americans in the pre-Civil War days were either Baptists or Methodists. And in 1793, there were nearly 75,000 Baptists in the United States, and one-fourth of them were black. And that statistic comes from the Handbook of Denominations in the United States. Now, despite having the dynamics of both free and slave individuals in these congregations, and these congregations being mixed with black and white individuals, this stream of Baptists did well. Black and white preachers would help assist one another in planting congregations and holding services, and black Baptists became more exclusive to the African-American community as time progressed, with the first black Baptist church being founded in 1773. The Civil War would solidify distinctions or draw harder lines, making for more and more exclusive African-American communities in this black Baptist tradition. The black Baptist churches did well in both the North and South, and they still flourish to this day. Now, as with each denomination, the issue of slavery caused waves in Baptist circles, but in a way that it's worth noting in this episode. First, a really random plug. A book that was enlightening on this subject at large is um, America's Religious History by Thomas Kidd. I found that particularly fascinating when reading about this aspect of church history in America. But nonetheless, many Baptists fought against slavery while others, namely in the South, they defended it. A key group that would arise that defended it would be the Southern Baptist Convention, or the SBC. And they would defend slavery and push back against advocating on issues of social justice. Now, on the flip side of that, there was the Northern Baptist Convention, but it wasn't actually formalized until much later, and that would be in 1907. The Northern Baptist Convention now is known as the American Baptist Churches in the USA. 
Now, I said earlier that the issue of slavery caused waves in Baptist circles in a way that was unique. And the reason why it's unique is because the SBC is the largest Baptist denomination in the United States. Now, at its 150th anniversary, the SBC would adopt the resolution addressing its grievous history and roots. And you can actually read a statement from Albert Moeller uh, expressing similar acknowledgments regarding the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and I'll link that as well. It is called uh, Reporting Slavery and Racism in the History of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Going back to the Civil War era, by this time, the General Baptist would be known more as the Free Will Baptist, and some would have their own congregations, but for the most part, Free Will Baptists and particular Baptists were among different conventions in both sides of the Northern and Southern Baptist conventions, and they would be mixed. For the most part, the particular Baptists or the Calvinistic Baptists were predominant in Baptist circles. These Baptists, however, from what I've ascertained, were less linked to the Reformed roots as those that came before them. And this is, again, speaking about the majority, not necessarily everything that was happening. As time went on, modernism came in and knocked on the door, and it affected the Baptist circles just like it did other denominations but this would lead to the independent fundamentalist Baptist who will be discussed in that miscellaneous section I mentioned earlier. From here, there are many Baptist churches, uh, many independent from one another without regional affiliations or headquarters or hierarchies. Um, some are truly independent, some are loosely affiliated. However, most opt to be part of a convention such as the SBC. Like other groups, these conventions act as mutual support for planting, missions, providing pastors, and so on and so forth, while still maintaining a congregational autonomy or polity. Baptists are one of, if not the largest Protestant groups in the United States. However, they could be divided into different denominations, depending on how we count denominations, uh, which we've talked about in episode one or two of this series. I can't remember. But some of the key Baptist groups consist of the American Baptist churches in the USA, the Baptist General Convention of Texas, the Conservative Baptist Association of America, the General Association of General Baptist, National Association of Free Will Baptists, the SBC, and so on and so forth. Baptists are generally conservative, yet as with other mainline Protestant denominations, the American Baptist churches in the USA has tended towards more liberal positions, while others, such as the SBC, have remained more conservative. The former, uh, while being welcoming and affirming, did declare homosexuality incompatible with the Bible and affirmed marriage between one man and one woman. But on the ground, it kind of has networks within its convention that are welcoming and affirming. So formally, they're conservative, but it's kind of hard to tell. Additionally, on the issues of women's ministry, it allows for full and equal ministry of women, even pastors. On the flip side of that, the SBC, the largest Baptist denomination, is generally considered very conservative, but not without its bouts of controversy, some being pretty recent, although it still maintains its conservative stance on the issues that we have talked about so far on these different social issues, including women in ministry. Now, because Baptists even those within conventions such as the SBC are strong congregationalists, there can be some variance on the details that we're going to go into. And so I'm going to do my best to speak broadly. On sources of authority, a distinctive of Baptists can be found in their historically high view of Scripture as the sole rule of faith in life. While other groups do maintain 
this high view of scripture, Baptists are kind of known for that as their distinctive. Sometimes this can be expressed as sola scriptura, and at other times it can devolve into solo scriptura. Conventions will have documents for proceedings, meetings, and official stances on issues, along with the general statement of faith that its congregations will need to affirm for associations. But for Baptist churches, the primary source of authority is the Bible and sometimes the creeds and confessions. Confessionalist Baptist churches can vary on this point. For example, Reformed Baptists are affirming of the Confession of Faith, that is the 1689 London Baptist Confession, and sometimes the General or Free Will Baptists will be confessional holding to that Orthodox Confession of Faith we mentioned earlier. It is worth pointing out that many Baptists, even if formally particular or general, can be found underneath the umbrella of conventions such as the SBC, even though there are distinctively Reformed Baptist conventions or groups. In other words, you may have a Reformed Baptist that is not in a Reformed Baptist network, but it is part instead of the SBC. Concerning the SBC itself, because of its position in Baptist circles, we're going to speak to them. The SBC holds officially to what is called the Baptist Faith and Message, which was originally drafted in 1925 to be the general confession of those who would be part of the SBC. The Baptist Faith and Message has a preamble that has a few qualifiers that states that the document constitutes a consensus of opinion of some Baptist bodies for general instructions and guidance. They are not intended to add conditions to salvation, and they are not regarded as complete statements of faith, and that they are not the final or infallible rule, but instead, quote, the sole authority for faith and practice among Baptists is the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. Confessions are only guides in interpretation, having no authority over the conscience, end quote. One can read the entire document for free at bfm.sbc.net. So when it comes to polity or church government, the Baptist church government is congregationalist. As with some others we have discussed already, the broader conventions act as support for these congregations and the congregations share resources amongst one another through these conventions. But the congregations are independently governed and run and autonomous. For example, while there is a criteria for being part of the SBC, and the SBC could or can kick out churches from the convention that do not align with the SBC distinctives, they have no control over those local churches. They only have control over who is and who is not part of the convention. Local congregations can utilize their conventions to find pastors and elders and utilize resources for planting, but that is kind of where formally the road ends. Local churches are autonomous and are free to ordain elders and pastors as they please. The congregational model is what it sounds like. It is similar to the Presbyterian model on its most local level. At the same time, the congregational models can differ a bit here and there. Usually a church is run by a group of governing elders in a local congregation. In this instance, a congregation is governed by a plurality of elders, some who may be staff while others may not be staff. Most often, a senior elder or pastor, or more rarely, a bishop, is the primary elder over the other elders. And in some rarer instances, a congregational model can adopt a single elder or pastor model. Oftentimes, the number of elders depends on the size of the congregation of a church. In the model where there is only one elder, sometimes there is also a board that serves underneath him, advising him, etc. Or, instead of a board, it could be deacons having that same function. The plurality of elders with a senior elder is the most common form of congregational polity, yet some congregations have adopted a board model where a church board is over the presiding elder of a congregation, and they kind of 
uh, keep checks and balances that way. Along with less common models arises the model of democracy. This one is usually kind of presented as the congregational model, but it's pretty rare. It removes the hierarchical structure of a governing individual or body altogether and leaves government to the congregation. This is not to be confused with the idea of a congregation having votes on different issues with a plurality of elders um, governing the church. This is where there is no governing body or individual and that the government is entirely in the hands of the congregation. In those models where elders are governing a congregation, how much the congregation plays a role in voting for different issues differs among congregations. So this is all to say that the congregation and how it's governed can differ in a congregation's context, size, needs, etc. Uh, the most common, again, is the plurality of elders, most often with a minimum of two staff elders. One model, for example, has two staff elders and several non-staff appointed elders. The former, those staff elders, are teaching pastor elders, while the latter are more ministerial for the body. In this particular model, the congregation nominates who should be considered for eldership, and that individual is evaluated by the sitting elders to determine whether or not he is suitable for that role. Moving into sacraments or ordinances, Baptists hold to two ordinances or sacraments. Most often, Baptists refer to them as ordinances, but that's neither here nor there for the point. On baptism, they agree that baptism is for those who have confessed faith in Christ and that baptism is not for infants or children who have not professed the faith. In Baptist circles, baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality of regeneration. It is designated for those who are regenerate and it mirrors the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and union with Christ, something that a non-professing individual cannot have. In rejecting baptismal regeneration, there is, therefore, no reason to baptize children or infants who have not shown signs of regeneration. How this is fleshed out in finer details can differ among Baptists. Or to put it a different way, they're all traveling from San Antonio to Houston, but how they get to Houston is different. For example, the Reformed Baptists or the particular Baptists are covenantal in their understanding, while there are also dispensational Baptists who, again, get to Houston the same way, but by the dispensational road rather than the covenantal road. Now, I will say that those finer details are certainly worth getting into, and you'll find that there's kind of a spectrum of how highly regarded these ordinances are, whether or not they're means of grace, um, differing among Baptists. And so don't take the statements that you see online like, you know, Baptists just see this as dunking in water and that it's nothing. That's not true. There's a more robust theology behind it. There's just a spectrum of the finer articulations. Now, within the Baptist tradition, a distinctive is the specifics on the mode of baptism. That is, um, rather than being sprinkling or immersion, Baptists hold that immersion is the necessary and proper mode of baptism by and large. I've never really seen a Baptist who sprinkles, and on paper, full immersion is usually what is expressed. Now, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, there is a spectrum, but I do think it's safe to say that most in our time hold to a pure memorialist view of the Supper, whereby the meal is to be taken in remembrance of what occurred and has no spiritual qualities in itself, but instead, it is spiritually beneficial in that the covenant community takes the meal together and Jesus is with the church at all times as is, meaning there's not a special presence of Jesus in regards to the supper and its elements. Instead, Jesus is present with his people at all times, and that's just kind of like the broad 
perspective. So in this view, it's pure memorialism. It is taking these elements just to remember there's nothing intrinsic about it or nothing spiritually intrinsic about it. But this is not the only view in Baptist circles. Some churches have a more spiritual memorial view that we talked about, I believe, in episode one or two. And then there are others who hold the same view as the Presbyterians or the Reformed and Calvin. And historic Baptist churches, particularly, again, the particular Baptists, for example, they held to the spiritual presence of Christ in the supper and put more emphasis on the ordinances as a means of grace relative to other modern Baptists. Historically, most Baptists, especially the particular Baptists, again, affirmed the spiritual presence along with the Reformed tradition. For the particular Baptist, this can actually be seen in the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith and or the commentary on it by James Renahan, which is excellent. But this is also seen in the Confession's republication of this section in line with other Reformed documents. The particular Baptist Confession also provides eight purposes for the Supper, generally being a more robust articulation relative to other Baptists on the subject. So what are the distinctives and emphasis of Baptists? We're going to mix these two sections together as we kind of have been as the, the series continues. The distinctives in the Baptist theology begins with a very strong emphasis on Scripture and scriptural authority. Now, like I said, in other denominations where they have a distinctive or emphasis that is also shared across the board, but there's more emphasis put on it in a particular tradition, that's kind of what's going on here. Other traditions don't lack a strong emphasis on scripture or scriptural authority. However, Baptists are kind of known for that. There is an emphasis and highlight on scriptural authority within Baptist circles, especially. Another distinctive is its position on baptism, obviously standing against the grain of other traditions that hold to pedo baptism. Another distinctive would be that congregational church government, because while there are others who are congregational, Baptists tend to emphasize congregationalism, especially the necessity and importance of a plurality of elders, again, because that is the majority position of these congregational models. The autonomy of the local church then is a significant distinction along with the priesthood of all believers being emphasized, again, similar to Lutherans. Christian liberty is also emphasized in Baptist circles, and a significant distinctive and emphasis similar to Anglicanism is the presence of a strong sense of unity amid a pretty broad sea of diversity. This diversity means that there are various types of Baptist churches one can find, but you'll generally find the same core in operation. To summarize this point, I'll quote Olson, quote, Baptists generally agree on the following principles of faith, the inspiration and trustworthiness of the Bible as the sole rule of faith and life, the lordship of Jesus Christ, the inherent freedom of persons to approach God for themselves, the granting of salvation through repentance and faith and contact with the Holy Spirit, two ordinances rather than sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism of believers by immersion, the independence of the local church, the church as a voluntary group of regenerated believers who are baptized upon confession of faith and separation of church and state. Most Baptist churches have a paid clergy, but they also believe that any regenerated or baptized believer can preach and perform the ordinances. Clergy are called and ordained as trained leaders and teachers, not as possessors of special spiritual qualities or powers, end quote. And again, that's the handbook of denominations in the United States. Now, one last distinctive that can and has been argued by others is that Baptists are distinctive because they have generally remained conservative despite all of the conflicts and pressures throughout time. This is not entirely wholesale. We've already talked about one of the divergences above. But it is one of those points where Baptists are kind of known as being seen as stubborn conservatives. 
meaning that you're more likely to find a conservative Baptist church in your hometown than any other denomination. So that kind of wraps up the Baptist section. I know I didn't really do the topic justice because there's a lot more that we could talk about. And some of that really stems from blending other groups with the Baptists. Like you could say the independent fundamentalist Baptists are in this category still. Some would even say non-denominational churches are in this category or the restoration churches. Um, however, most most works on denominations will separate Baptists from those other groups. And so that's important. Um, really, what I think tends to happen is that you have people that believe in believers only baptism all being lumped together as Baptist because it is a distinctive. And so Baptists have been identified by that distinctive, meaning that anyone who looks like them in that distinctive are thrown into the Baptist category, which is kind of where the Anabaptist Baptist debates come from. Oh, you, you don't baptize infants, therefore you're an Anabaptist, like that kind of rhetoric. And so I think that's really what happens. And one could throw out a brief apologetic against this idea and saying, if we did this to Pado-Baptists, there'd be a lot of confusion. It wouldn't be seen as fair. The Pado-Baptists wouldn't like it. For example, if we called the Anglicans, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Eastern Orthodox, Catholics, all just Pado-Baptists and didn't care to make distinctions amongst them, that would be unfair. And I think that does happen a lot with Baptists. And so I think having those proper categories of distinctions between Baptists and the Restoration Movement and thus the non-denomination and thus the Independent Fundamentalist Baptists is important and helpful. Um, I have to say, as a Baptist, whenever I'm looking on the ground floor and I'm kind of seeing things going kind of weird in churches that are non-denominational, but everyone's like, well, they're just Baptists. I'm kind of like, well, but they're, but they're not. They're not just Baptists. It's not to say that there's not weird churches in like the SBC. In fact, there is much to do in the last couple of years within the SBC about a couple of churches. You can go look into all that history. But it is a little bit unfair to start tacking on people um, that aren't necessarily part of that tradition, right? Or those who have deviated from a tradition. And since Baptists are Congregationalists, it does make it harder for other groups to say, hey, this represents all Baptists because no, we're Congregationalists. While it, it honestly is a harder time for those who have ecclesiastical structures where there's higher ups from the local congregation who are supposed to discipline these local congregations because then you all of a sudden have, well, these congregations are kind of going out of whack. You need to do something about it because if you don't, that's a reflection on the entire tradition instead of just being a congregation within a broader umbrella. Honestly, all the dynamics are pretty interesting on that front. The, the underlying point here is that not all who are credo Baptists are necessarily part of the Baptist tradition, even if sharing Baptist convictions on baptism. The Mennonites, for example, are not Baptists in the formal sense of the word. They're Baptists, I guess, in the sense of an informal sense of the word, where, yeah, they, they only baptize believers, but they're not Baptists in terms of the tradition. Same thing with non-denominational. Which, actually, whenever I reflect on like the Restoration Movement and the Church of Christ and some of the churches I've seen come out of the Church of Christ that are non-denominational, it makes more sense now that I've really engaged in a more deep understanding of how these threads pull together. Um, for example, Max Lucado's church. And if you don't know, Max Lucado is a pretty big name, but he has a church in San Antonio called Oak Hills Church. Actually, I don't know if he's still pastoring there or not. But Oak Hills Church was actually founded in Fredericksburg, Texas, and was planted out of the Church of Christ and comes from the Church of Christ lineage. 
But if you look at Oak Hills Church in Max Lucado, what you have is a mega church that really went into the seeker sensitive thing. And there's not really a resemblance there. So it's very interesting to see that. And eventually, I mean, whenever you look up their history, they dropped the association with the Church of Christ altogether, but they still talk about being planted in Fredericksburg, which is all very fascinating. So that's really kind of a long rant. I don't, don't really know why I went into all that. So that wraps up this episode on Baptists. Next week will be on, let me just double check my notes real quick, and I'm going to keep talking while I do it to be all professional, is going to be the Adventists. We're going to talk about the Adventists with a focus and detour on the Seventh-day Adventists because you can't really talk about the Adventists without bringing them up because of how influential they are. I think you'll find some things in that episode interesting in particular. So that's it. God bless you all, and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.